Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a conundrum of life that's long vexed me. I'm not sure if it's vexed you in the same way, perhaps. It's an odd situation that we find ourselves in. Ancient philosophers and thinkers in many ages lauded the reflective life, a life spent in the search of a well-lived existence. That was the goal, the good life, or eudaimonia in Greek. Improvements in technology and productivity were supposed to give us more time to do what we want. Consider for a moment how much time used to be spent doing the basic everyday chores of life. Imagine, for example, the time saved with the advent of running water. Historian Robert Caro, in his first volume of the biography of Lyndon Johnson, went into great detail about the struggles of Texans in the hill country during Lyndon Johnson's youth. Without electricity, all the water for a home had to be manually pumped and then brought into the house. Think about the effort that took for bringing water for meals or for laundry. Think of the time it takes to do laundry by hand. One of Johnson's great achievements when he was in the House of Representatives was the Rural Electrification Bill, which required utility companies to provide electricity to rural areas in the hill country. Ah, life was so much better. Life was so much easier. Electric water pumps, electric washing machines. Think of all the time that people then had on their hands for leisure. Agriculture today is mind-blowingly efficient compared to 150 years ago, let's say. You can provide nutritious food for a small portion of your income. It used to take three quarters of the population to grow food for the nation. Now a nation many times larger can produce a surplus of food with only two or three percent of the population working as farmers. Amazing. Meals take less time to prepare than ever before, unless of course you want to spend your time cooking. Not only can you order takeout food delivered right to your door, but you can order meals that you cook where every ingredient is already prepared for the cooking. <laughs> now, I've never tried Blue Apron or these other services, but think of the time that's saved. Ah, so much time for leisure. A hundred years ago, factory workers would regularly work 60 or 70 hours per week. Now, you have a 40-hour work week. With all the productivity increases, why not make it a 30-hour work week or even a 20-hour work week? If you want, you could buy artificial grass that never needs to be mowed. <laughs> Clothes are cheaper than ever before. So are electronics that make life more efficient. You now hold a virtual supercomputer in the palm of your hand that you can control by telling it what you want to do. Hey Siri, give me satellite GPS directions to my next errand. Hey Google, turn on the lights in my room. I could have a whole library of books on my tablet so that I don't even need to get out of my chair. Time saved everywhere. It's a dream world for philosophers. We get to lounge around and enjoy life. We live far longer in far healthier states than at any time in the past. 
This modern world, it's incredible. All the free time we could ever want. Leisure and no stress. Isn't that right? This, of course, is the conundrum. By all rights, by all rights, in any rational world, people should be enjoying relaxed, low-stress living. After all, what are these productivity increases for? <laughs> and yet, somehow, the opposite is true. Any objective measure you use tells the same story. People are more stressed than ever before. People complain about being overworked and not having enough time for the things they care most about. I am sure you have felt the same way at one time or another. You just want a break. You want time to yourself. If only things could be a little easier. So what happened? I'm confused. How did we get here? You ever thought about that? Why don't we have endless leisure time? Well, the answer depends on who you talk to. Someone like Thorsten Veblen, in his book, The Theory of the Leisure Class, which was written well over 100 years ago, says it all has to do with the evolution of class and class structure. In feudal times, you had the aristocrats who owned land by force of arms and then required serfs to work their property. As society developed from a feudal agricultural society to a modern industrial society, the feudal aristocracy was replaced and evolved into the capitalist leisure class. In Veblen's analysis, you do have those who enjoy leisure, but they enjoy leisure at the expense of the work of others. What drives the consumption of the leisure class is the drive for status, shown through what Veblen called conspicuous consumption. So it's the evolution of the class structure combined with the clamoring for status that keeps people of all classes busy and striving. Karl Marx, whom Veblen used for some of his analysis, attributed our endless working to the struggle that happens among the classes. Max Weber. Max Weber, in turn, placed the blame on the Protestant work ethic. Protestants, and particularly Calvinists, like the old Congregationalists, believe strongly in the concept of vocation. We are all called by God to do particular work. Perhaps your work is in the church, but an equally valid calling would be to work in business, law, medicine, or even as a manual laborer or farmer. Whatever your preordained calling might be, the saints should always be striving, always working. Sloth is bad and a sign of sin. Likewise, conspicuous consumption is bad for Calvinists and sinful. You should work hard and then reinvest those profits. It's an ever upward, ever onward struggle. You must build the kingdom of God and be worthy of your calling. Work, work, work. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. Now, perhaps instead, you want to lay the blame for our busyness at the feet of economics. Economics theorizes that there is always limitless demand. Once you get what you think you want, there will always be something else that catches your eye. The field of economics is all about the distribution of scarce resources. Resources will always be scarce because of the limitless nature of demand, at least according to economics. Then again, maybe the fault lies with the advertising industry and the need to build profits in a company. 
The company must make its quarterly dividend payments, and the stock price must always rise, or the top management will be replaced. Advertising is required to make people think they want something that they don't really want or never knew they needed. By using advanced psychology, you can convince people that they will only find happiness with a bigger or better car, a bigger house, a new gadget. Want to be happier and healthier? Buy this new product. It's sure to solve everything. And once you have this product, I have five more to sell you. Social media and the internet only exacerbate this trend. We are glued to our screens and bombarded with new products that can be had at just the click of a button. Now, perhaps the fault lies, say, in competition among nations. Nations are only as strong as their GDP. Therefore, political leaders must craft an economy that is ever-growing. Whatever it takes, you must drill into your citizens the need to produce more, invent something else to make more, get people to work harder. Lazy citizens are the worst if you want to grow GDP. You must shame them into working. Don't provide too much or you'll make your citizens lazy. Tax wealth and wealth transfers to ensure that there is no leisure class. You must get everyone working. That's the goal. You need more GDP, more power, or you'll be swallowed up by other nations and lose your freedom. Then again, the fault might lie in human nature itself. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi studied the, psych the psychology of optimum human experience. He theorized that humans are at their happiest when we reach a state of what he calls flow. That flow state only comes from striving after a worthy goal. It is only in work, in achieving goals, in discovering what makes us tick that we find happiness. Sitting around and doing nothing is not what humans want. Even people who have no need for money for their basic needs fill time to find meaning in life. Now, to be frank, all of these theories for our perpetual busyness have something to them. Yes, our desire for status drives us onwards. We want to keep up with the Joneses, as Thorsten Veblen might argue if you were around today. We work to stay on top and to keep us and our children upwardly mobile. That's why we push our children to succeed in school, get into a good college and get a good job. You want to get a taste of the ruling class. Yes, the Calvinist underpinnings of American society do play a role. Laziness is bad. Work is good. Those who succeed are morally superior to others. Economics and the power of advertising to feed a never-ending demand are potent factors in our constant striving. Public policy makes a difference. Also, our drive for meaning and purpose play a role as do the exigencies of life. Regardless of how you slice it, of what reason you give for our constant busyness, it is there. It is a fact of life. And the sad part of this fact of life is that we so often find ourselves run down, burnt out, frazzled, and in need of rest. So what do we do? How do we handle this work frenzy and the stress it causes? 
Stress is literally killing us. It frays our relationships with those whom we care about. It leads to high blood pressure and has been linked to cancer. If we want to thrive in modern society, we need ways of coping with stress and busyness. Now, there are plenty of potential solutions to our sources of stress. Some will argue it's about getting as much as you can so you can retire early. Others seek out coping, mecha coping mechanisms, many of which are bad for our health. But as a Christian, and particularly a Christian preacher, I'm rather intrigued to see what Jesus might have to say about all this. Do you ever wonder that? What might Jesus say to you today? What would Jesus do about our conundrum of endless work? WWJD indeed. Well, I want to present to you Exhibit A, our text for this morning from the Gospel of Mark. The text takes place at the beginning of the Gospel, the start of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. In the scene immediately beforehand, Jesus casts out a demon in a synagogue on the Sabbath. It's Jesus' first confrontation with the authorities and his first demonstration of his power to heal. Then, here in our text, he finds himself in the home of Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, that means that the Apostle Peter, the first pope, was in fact married. So much for priests not marrying. Anyway, Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Jesus heals her. By then, word has gotten out. Jesus can heal. He can make you well. He casts out demons and illnesses. As soon as night falls, which means the Sabbath is over, throngs of people clamor at the door of Peter's mother-in-law's house. The text tells us that the whole city was there. The whole city! I'm not sure how many people that was, but it wasn't a small number. And Jesus got to work. This is nighttime, mind you. There he was, working away, one sick person and demon-possessed person after another, as the hours clicked by. Now, I'm not exactly sure how tiring this was for Jesus, but I'm guessing it wasn't easy. Anyway, cut scene. The next thing we read, it's early morning. Like, really early morning, when it's still pitch black outside. Jesus awakens and leaves the house and goes to a deserted place. There he prays. Meanwhile, back at the house, Peter wakes up and begins to panic. Where is the rabbi? Where did he go? There is work to be done. He can't just take off like that. Who does he think he is? The text tells us that Peter, along with the others that he aroused, hunted down Jesus. That's right. The verb here means to hunt someone down, to chase after them, to pursue. These men are in a state. They need to find Jesus. Everyone, everyone is looking for him. So what's Jesus say in response? Let's go somewhere else, to a neighboring market town so I can preach. That's what I came to do. And just like that, they take off leaving the crowd behind. Hmm. So what can we glean from this? What do we learn? 
when you're feeling stressed, when work is pressing in all around you, when you feel like you're about to pull your hair out or you can barely move for your exhaustion, take time away. That's okay. That's a good thing. Jesus could have awoken and gone right back to work. There was an endless number of people to heal. The work was important. This is very important work. And yet, Jesus took time for himself. You should too. For Jesus, it meant finding a deserted place and praying. What place can you go to to find healing and restitution? Do you go there often enough? What sort of spiritual practices or disciplines help you to find your quiet center? There are endless resources, excellent resources out there if you're looking for them. Do you want to find out more about meditation or mindfulness? You got lots of options. Different types of Christian prayer? Again, lots of options. Is your deserted place in nature? In reading a book? At the gym? Find it. Go there. Take time. Be like Jesus. It brings to mind that famous poem of Wendell Berry's, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down, where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water. I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. What else do we see here? What else can we learn? Jesus decides to move on to a neighboring town. Jesus says no to the people of Capernaum. He draws a boundary. He says, I've done enough. Whew. Now that's a big deal. In the busy world in which we live, where we are pressed upon on all sides with more and more demands, imagine what it means to occasionally say no. Imagine realizing that it's okay to say no. You don't have to be at every meeting. You don't have to volunteer for everything that comes your way. You don't have to take a promotion that you don't want to. You can say no and move on to a neighboring town. This still shakes me a bit to my core. <laughs> I'm not, this is, this is not my strong suit. Uh, but think of how liberating it can be to know that you can say no. Now, Jesus is still going to do the work. Yet he is comfortable saying no when he needs to. The final thing we see in this passage is that Jesus prioritizes his preaching. Yes, he's a healer. He heals people and makes their lives immeasurably better as a result. But you know what? He proclaims something, and he sees that calling to proclaim as even more important than healing. At the heart of our obsession with work, busyness, accomplishing things, is a particular mindset. We feel that in order to be worthy, we must do more. 
Otherwise, our life will not measure up in some way. All of this is driven by the elements that I mentioned before. But Jesus preaches something different. He proclaims a vision that undermines the rat race. We don't need to find ourselves in the conundrum of busyness. We have a choice. You can choose not to care about status or to measure yourself by your possessions. You can choose not to measure yourself by your children's accomplishments, at least accomplishments as they're so often measured by society. You can choose not to buy more things to limit your demand. We have the potential to step away from the busyness because Jesus preaches that your self-worth is rooted in God. He preaches that you are loved by God. He preaches that we need to care for those who need healing. God's vision is for peace, healing, wholeness. The primary thing for Jesus is actually to reframe our mindset. That is his mission. That's what he leaves Capernaum to do. To tell people to look around and see God in our midst. What an insight. The world today is a busy place. We're busy and stretched thin time and again. I'm looking especially at you, dear parents. It's not easy balancing competing demands. But in order to do it right, in order to deal with the world as we have it, we need self-care. Have a spot to go where you can recharge and then remember to go there. Do your best to live as what you think God wants you to do and let that be enough. Saying no even to good things is okay. There will always be neighboring villages and other worthy endeavors. If you're tired and worn out, you can't do the work of God that God is calling you. Consider shifting your mindset. Remember that Jesus came to proclaim God's reign of peace and wholeness. Now, the Gospel of Mark did not end in chapter 1. The demands on Jesus' time did not miraculously go away. Jesus didn't do his work in Capernaum and then retire. Instead, he nurtured tools for inner strength so that he could thrive in the journey ahead. I wish the same thing for you and for me too. Because you know what? There will always be important work for us to do.